Romans. We're going to finish tonight, uh, hopefully, and we're going to be doing Romans chapter 12 through 16, and I wanted to, I'm not texting, I promise. I was going to actually bring up a text, so I might read part of chapter 12 to you. So, anyway, um, real quick, uh, backing up, because we went through sanctification, and then we had to answer the question regarding the Jew and what God's intention is for ethnic and national Israel. But then as we're coming back to chapter 12, Paul is he's going right back to chapter 6, and he's bringing us up to, to date on that, and then begins to tell us how this, these things unravel practically within this context, and then our, also our relationship with the world. So uh, you remember in chapter six, we said that chapter six, Paul gives to us kind of the, the nuts and bolts or the mechanics of sanctification. And chapter seven was Paul's failure of self-empowered sanctification. You remember all of the, um, uh, the, the personal pronouns and the active voice. It's all Paul trying to be holy according to his own strength. And through the whole discussion, he's just talking about how he just fell on his face and fell on his face. And then we turn to chapter 8, and then Paul, ex- he explains his experience of being empowered by the Spirit to live the way that God wants him to. And there's, I guess we could say, spiritual success. And then it was, we come to the end of chapter 8 with Paul's conclusion. And then remember, we asked that question, well, if that's true, if everyone who God foreknows will be with him in glory, what about the Jews who he foreknew but have fallen into unbelief and rebellion? So that's 9 through 11, and now we come back to um, uh, his, his argument. So how to, Romans 12 uh, through 16 is, is how to worship and serve God. That's, uh, he, he addresses that in verse 1 of chapter 12. And then maybe you've gotten tripped up on the language of the end of verse two that says, and do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The statement uh, literally means to experience the, the good will of God. Uh, as you walk out his will from the word, you experience his good will. You, you, you come to prove that this is actually good stuff, okay? How many of you have obeyed God's word and said, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not just not so sure about that. I'm not sure if that was the right thing to do or I don't know if that was the, the best method to approach that. I, I just don't know anybody that's ever done that, uh, that's obeyed God's word as it's clearly stated in the scriptures and said, oh, I think that was a bad idea. No, we walk in God's word and as C.S. Lewis said, all of God's ways work, but they're all good, they're all right. He's, he's wise and... He knows what's best. So, so let's talk about this a little bit. He says, I'm going to read one and two for, for, for you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present, maybe remember that term, present your bodies as living sacrifices, sacrifice, as opposed to an offering on an altar, a dead sacrifice, that is holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or worship, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good 
and acceptable and perfect will of God. So now what we're talking about is no longer the, the nuts and bolts of sanctification and the means by which God sanctifies us. Now it's just the, the practical aspects of it as we begin to walk in God's will. This is the directive, uh, you might say, for new covenant living. What does new covenant living look like? So in, in verse 1, Paul picks up where he left off in Romans chapter 6, verse 13, where he talked about uh, who it is that we're to present our bodies to for obedience. You remember that? He's talking about don't present your bodies to, the, to sin and its passions, but rather present yourself to God as, as slaves of God for righteousness. Okay, well here he's picking that up on that and he's giving us a direction to go and then he'll start unpacking uh, the details, the directives for that. So verse two picks up where he left off in Romans 8.29 where he talked about God's intent to conform us to the image of Christ. He wants to, to reshape us, of course not our physical appearance, uh, but our values, our character, and, uh, and all of that. So our bodies and our minds, all of it belongs to God so that he can do with us as pleases him, as, as what is good. And then, when we do that, only then can the believer test and know for himself the goodness of God's will. Okay. So Romans 12 through 16 is how the believer presents his body for service and how it is that the mind is transformed into the likeness of Christ. So chapter 12, verse 3 through 8, um, Paul explains how the Christian experience, it, it has to begin, he says, with humility, recognizing that God has gifted his community, the community of believers, for his glory and for the mutual blessing of all. Okay? And the gifts are designed, as we learn, especially in, in Corinthians, uh, all of them are designed for the edification, the building up of the body of Christ. So he has a small section on gifts there, and then he gets into uh, really the most practical stuff. So um, verse 9 through 21 is sort of a, it's kind of a manifesto of Christian conduct in the context, as, as I've already said, in the context of human relationships, both uh, among us as believers and then how we conduct ourselves with those on the outside. And um, if you were to uh, be able to observe Jesus' life, uh, you would find that it's completely consistent with, with these uh, verses. So what I want to do is I want to read the section to you. Um, my family, we used to have this, the last section here memorized, and then we, we stopped and we started doing Colossians, uh, something in Colossians 3. But we need to come back to this. It's really great. I'm going to read it out of the ESV. Uh, they take some liberty to translate uh, or kind of interpret the grammar and stuff. He says this. Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It looks difficult, like there's a lot there to memorize, but we memorized it, and I think, Shani, how long did it take us to memorize that? Was it a couple months? Yeah, a couple months. It's kind of a nice thing to have it, you know, tip of your tongue on your mind, um, especially when you're dealing with difficult people. I wasn't looking at you because of that. <laughs> Gabe's not here to look at, so I just have you. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so it's interesting as you read the, the uh, kind of these uh, imperatives and exhortations, they're all in the present tense. And what that means is this is what needs to always be happening. It's just a part of our life. And, and some of the, the, the way that the grammar is there is that, uh, and he, they, not he, whoever translated the ESV, uh, I was pointing some of this out to Roger. So in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. It is be contributing to the needs of the saints and be seeking to show hospitality. Not just, not just be um, passively waiting for a hospitable opportunity, but the idea here is to seek that opportunity, make the opportunity to be hospitable. And the whole section is written that way. It's, it's all proactive. It's all going out and doing and initiating and uh, creating opportunity. It's blessing those who persecute. Uh, it's, it's blessing and not cursing. It's rejoicing. It's, it's weeping with those who weep. It's living in harmony with one another. Uh, so it's, it's, a very, it's a very cool section of scripture. So anyway, there you have that. Um, you guys have till end of March to have it memorized. How's that? Who would like to take up the challenge to memorize it? Marsha, all right. Ooh, Sydney, okay. Anybody else? I'm going to write these names down. Nine to the end, yeah. I'll do it with you. How's that? Uh, whatever translation you want. I, I'm fond of that section in the ESV because of the way they translated uh, some of that. This, one of the pieces is to outdo one another in showing honor. So it makes showing honor to people almost a competitive thing. And, and, and that's biblical because Jesus made service a competitive thing. Do you remember? He said, whoever wants to be greatest in the kingdom will be the servant of all. And he said that to a group of men. Jesus knew what he was doing. So strive to be the best by being the lowest. Okay. All right. Chapter 13, 1 through 7. Uh, this is all about the Christian's relationship to government. Uh, and we either like or hate this text depending on who the government is, right? If we agree with the government 100%, uh, chapter 13 comes as uh, a pleasant text. But if um, the administration is ungodly and liberal and whatever, uh, we have a tendency to look for justification to do anything but what they say. Uh, but we always have to keep that in the context 
historically. And Paul said this when he was a free man, and he said the same thing when he was in prison, talking to Timothy. And uh, who was emperor when he was imprisoned the last time? Nero. Yep. And Nero was a vicious murderer. He hated the church. Uh, he hated Christianity. And Paul, uh, his convictions about government did not change, regardless of where he was. It, so it wasn't circumstantial. So all the fun stuff. So uh, Paul argues that all government, uh, no matter how wicked, is appointed by God. He's not accountable for what they do, but he did place them in power. Does that make sense? He will judge them for the wicked deeds that they commit. Um, but anyway, so he says that government is, is uh, an, uh, appointed by God. It's his institution. And so under normal circumstances, he were to be subject, were to pay our taxes, were to render customs, were to fear, and were to honor them. And some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Ben, you talked about civil disobedience on Sundays a couple months ago. And that's true. So civil disobedience, there are times when it's biblical, but you have to be sure that if you're justifying civil disobedience that you can find a parallel example in the scriptures of something that God permits. Otherwise, um, there's just no boundaries. And then Christians will do all kinds of crazy things. Right? Jamie? Okay. Got my eye on you. All right. <clears throat> chapter, 13, eight, uh, chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, talk about the supremacy of love as our duty to others, and then uh, righteousness as preparation for judgment. And chapter 14, uh, I like chapter 14 and 15. Uh, both of them have to do with the supremacy of love in the context of, of doubtful things uh, that immature people believe or still practice because of who knows? It could be misinformation, lack of teaching, uh, or it could be uh, some weakness in their conscience, Paul talks about. And uh, so he's, Paul instructs us to receive those who are weak in the faith, and he says, because God has received them. And if God has received them, what right do we have to turn them away? Okay. Have you ever uh, ministered to young believers and some of the quirky little things that they do, say, believe, um, the way that they pray, uh, they haven't quite come out of all of their former lifestyles and language and things like that. It is good for us as a church to, to have that in our midst frequently uh, and to bear with them and to encourage them and to understand that this is where people start and then it takes time as God sanctifies them and changes them. And so I like new believers. Um, it's kind of like... It's kind of like babies or, or children. You know, they just do childish things, and it's cute. And that's fine, Paul says to the Corinthians, as long as you're not doing that after you've been in the faith for 10, 15, and 20 years. Okay? It's no longer cute when an adult is sucking his thumb and, and doing all that business. So spiritually, when people come to the faith, they just, they're just not there yet. And we need to be patient with them. We need to walk beside them. And that's really what Paul is saying uh, here in the text, uh, it has to do with what we've done in, in this early part of the church is we've brought pagan Gentiles who are coming to faith and then we bring Jews to the faith and then we throw them into the same group together. 
and, and we say, now get along. And the pagans are coming from this background, the Jews are coming from this background. It's extremely difficult. Well, just think about this. You remember in Acts chapter 15, we had, <clears throat> not Acts chapter 15, in Acts chapter 6, we had Jews from Israel, and then we had Hellenistic Jews, that is, Jews that were brought up in the Greek culture. When they were brought together, there was major problems. And they're all Jews, and they're practicing the same religion, but they come from two different cultures. And they came together, and there was chaos. Well, now, in Romans and uh, throughout the Roman world, you have pagans, idol worshipers, and they're not just religiously out there, morally they're askew. And then you bring them together with the Jews and you toss them together and it's something. Okay? Your traditional Jew believed that if you touch the stuff of the Gentiles, they would be ceremonially unclean. So they have to get over tons of stuff in order to be in fellowship with, with uh, Gentiles. So Paul is addressing that issue uh, to the Roman church because it is a, a group of, of Jews and Gentiles. So perhaps you've studied Romans and one commentator says, well, Paul was writing to the Jews. Another commentator says, well, Paul was writing to the Gentiles. Have you ever heard that? Oh, that's good. I encounter it all the time and none of them are right. You read the book of Romans, he's writing to both parties. He writes to the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1. He writes to the Jews in Romans chapter 2 and 3. He comes back later and he says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. So whenever I read that and, and a, a commentator says, well, he was writing to the Jews. Well, it says right here he's talking to the Gentiles in Romans chapter 11. And then back in Romans chapter 7, he says, I'm talking to those who know the law. So he's talking to the Jews there. So he's talking to a, a group of mixed believers. Okay. And how do they come together and get along. So, not minor hurdles, but they had to get over them because Christ rules over both. Chapter 15, 1 through 7, uh, it's just again, it's reinforcing the supremacy of love. Let love rule, okay? And um, bear with the scruples of the weak, he says. 8 through 21, uh, I am fond of this passage, especially because of, of where it begins, it, Paul talks about being confident that the church is able, uh, he's confident they are competent to counsel one another. Uh, your translation may say admonish. Uh, it's the same concept. It means to warn, it means to instruct, it means to provide counsel. So what do you think about that? Paul says to a body of believers that he's never met, and he says, I am confident that you are able to counsel one another. I hope it's true because that takes a lot of burden off of me as the pastor. I can say, not just for that reason, but I can say, you know what? John Wiley would be a really great person to consult on that particular subject. Or so-and-so. And, and I'm glad because we have so many people in the church that have so many different skills and gifts, many that I don't have, and I can say, you know what, you're really talking to the wrong guy. You should talk to this person because that's their skill set, they're gifted in that, they enjoy talking about it, they're good at it, and I can pass people off in a good way. Amen? Yeah, that's a healthy church. 
Southie Church. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that in the audience here is uh, Priscilla and Aquila, the two Jews that Paul met, uh, a couple. Uh, you always wonder, well, who's the woman? Uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla's the woman. But uh, Paul met them in Corinth. He discipled them for a short amount of time. And then uh, in Ephesus, they encounter Apollos, who is misinformed uh, about the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so these two young believers take Apollos, this, this oratory champion. Remember it says that he was just squashing the Jews and uh, demonstrating that Jesus was the Christ and everything else, but he was misinformed about something. And so these young believers take him aside and they admonish him. They further instruct him more accurately about the way. It's good stuff. Yeah. So if you... Now, none of us are, are responsible for teaching people what we do not know. But if what you know as a believer, regardless of how mature or how, how educated you are, if the information you have is accurate biblically, then share it. Communicate it. Communicate it. I think that you have an obligation to do that. All right. 22, uh, 15 through 32. Uh, Paul, again, he states his desire to come to Rome, and uh, he wants to be a blessing to them, but he also wants them to help him on his way to Spain. Now, there's, there's something implied in there that we see demonstrated elsewhere, and that it's, it's the local church's responsibility to help missionaries. Do you see it? Paul is expecting, and he's not being presumptuous, he's expecting the church of Rome to help him to launch into Spain to preach the gospel. So he is, he's, he, he's just assuming that they understand that it is their responsibility to push the gospel further west, to participate in the Great Commission. Okay. When we get to Acts 13 and other uh, passages of scripture, we find that not only is the church to be, the, uh, to be supporting and helping missionaries, but they're also to be the sending body, the sending body. So sending and supporting, it's the local church's job. So a lot of us, uh, we, we know we can't go to the mission field globally, but we can help missionaries that do. We can pray for them, we can underwrite their work, and, um, and all of that, so, yep. We, we find that uh, first thing in the book of Acts when the Jerusalem church began to push people out. We find it in Antioch, and then Paul is expecting it of the Roman church as well. Now, that doesn't mean that this church is responsible for every missionary that's out there, but it's, Paul is just, uh, just basically saying that that is the role of the church. We should be. If we want to be a great commission church, a New Testament church, we have to be participating in missions. It would just be... I don't know, it'd be strange. In fact, if this church wasn't involved in missions, uh, you shouldn't come to this church. You shouldn't come. But, but we are, so you don't have to leave over that. <laughs> okay, where was I? I'm in there someplace. Chapter 16, last chapter, 1 through 16. Uh, it's just a bunch of greetings. You can read through there. You can identify some of the names, uh, like Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, there, there is some discussion in there about the home church. Uh, there's, it's, it appears that there are multiple home churches uh, in the city of Rome. 
And, if the, and we believe that the custom that was started in Jerusalem was continued throughout all of the major cities, like Rome and Ephesus and Corinth, is that you know, people met in homes so the, the church could only grow to such a size and then it had to divide and, and then you do another home church here, another home church there. So throughout the week, uh, it, it seems to be the case as they maintain the custom of throughout the week getting together in homes and then on Sunday they would try to get together in a larger venue. So in, remember in Jerusalem, they met at home, uh, on homes during the week and then on Sunday they, they went to the temple as a church. And they got together, we might say, as a corporate meeting. And I kind of like that because we can do that as a church with our home groups uh, throughout the week and then come together on Sundays for our, our corporate meeting. So anyway, something to consider. Um, yeah. And then also, uh, me and Roger were talking about this today, there's this random, uh, Paul seems to have already finished with all of his instructions and then in verse 17, uh, he throws out one last thing. So you have him greeting people in the church. He throws in a piece of instruction. And then he starts saying, and the people that are with me greet you as well. But right in the middle is this thing uh, about um, people that are theologically divisive. He says, I want you to find them, or rather uh, identify them, and then avoid them. Okay, identify them and avoid them. I want you to be patient with the spiritually immature. But if someone is theologically divisive, he says, I want them out of the church. Okay, they're trouble. They shouldn't be around because, as he says in the text, they will take advantage of people that are immature in the faith. So get them out of there. Uh, Verse 25 through 27 uh, wraps it up, it's Paul's benediction and doxology. How many of you guys have been into, in a church that the pastor at the end, he says, receive the benediction? You guys been to a church like that? Okay. Yeah, I think it's cool. Uh, and a benediction is just a blessing. And then, of course, doxology, it, it means to, to give praise. And so he gives both a benediction and a doxology, and he is done with the book. So let me review with you. Uh, it'll be real quick. As we've said uh, from the beginning of the book of Romans, uh, Romans provides the most comprehensive and systematic instruction regarding the Christian faith, which Paul calls, not the Christian faith, he calls it the gospel. And typically we think of the gospel as just that message that Christ uh, died and rose again uh, by which we can be saved. Now that is just a portion of the gospel. The gospel is all of new covenant living, and that's what he calls the book of Romans, the gospel. And uh, so some people like um, simple outlines, some people like really detailed outlines of books. Uh, But I find that most people like them pretty simple. So let me give you a couple, and and you can have and enjoy whichever one you like. The Book of Romans is divided into two major sections, uh, consisting of what we should believe and how it is that we should behave. That's the simplest Uh, outline I can give you. Okay, two major sections. Uh, Romans 1 through 11 is Paul just, he's just dumping theology and doctrine on you. Here is what uh, the Christian faith affirms. Okay, that's what it affirms, chapters 1 through 11. That's a lot of chapters, isn't it? Just to get pounded with theology. 
systematically. And then Romans 12 through 16 is how we should behave as Christians. So just a few chapters on um, Christian conduct. And actually, you have to, you, there's only one verse in chapter 16 that is imperative in form, one piece of instruction. So really, you only have 12 through 15 as how we should live as Christians. How many of you guys have seen a statement of faith for a church that says, the Bible prescribes uh, all of faith and practice for Christians? You seen that? People aren't using that language as much anymore, but most of your traditional statement of faith talked about the Bible being everything uh, pertaining to faith and practice, what it is that Christians believe and how it is that they behave. And that's, that's we use the Bible for our rule, faith and practice. So Romans, uh, is, they, they, they certainly got that from the way that Paul wrote many of his letters. He would start out with the faith. He would, he would start out with our practice, our behavior. So how many of you guys like the simple outlines? It's okay if that's what you like. I think that's sweet. So here's a little more detailed. It's not super detailed, um, but it's somewhat. So there's God's wrath against sin. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. We talked about how that's initially. He talks about the sins of the Gentiles, and then he talks about the sins of the Jews. Uh, nobody's off the hook. If, if he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it doesn't matter what ethnicity, it doesn't matter what gender you are, um, all have sinned, Gentiles sinned against their conscience. It, internally, they sinned against what they know in the creation. The Jews, they sinned against God's law. So everybody is guilty. They're deserving of God's judgment. And so it describes in that same section, we, we might say man's need for righteousness or the kind of righteousness that God requires. In chapter 1, through chapter 3, verse 20. And then in Romans 3, 21 through 5, 21, we have God justifying the sinner by means of the death and resurrection of Christ. Remember, he takes, through faith, he takes the righteousness of Christ, he imputes it to the believer, and he takes our sin and he imputes it to Christ. Christ suffers the penalty for our sin and we receive the reward for his righteousness. And then Romans 6 through 8 is God, uh, the sanctification of the sinner. So when he justifies us, he hasn't done anything to us. When we first get saved, nothing happens to us other than we become regenerate. We don't instantly become good people. How many of you guys, the day you got saved, you were just like, you were ready to roll. Let me stand before the king. Okay, that didn't happen. Uh, you get saved, you're born again by the spirit of God, and then through a lifelong process of sanctification, he's conforming you to the moral image, character of Jesus. And that's all theology up to that point. And then um, God's promise to Israel confirmed. And I say God's promise, I mean all of the Old Testament promises to ethnic Israel, um, which some people say have been abrogated, Paul confirms them in 9 through 11. We are waiting for the final fulfillment of God's promises to a future generation of Jews. Okay, 9 through 11, and then uh, 12 through 16 is God's directive for the believer. That's Romans. Now, if you guys remember, we spent an extended amount of time on Genesis, and we've done the same thing with Romans. 
And the reason is, is because of the value that each of those books play uh, in, are so foundational to the Christian faith. So, I got a couple of minutes. Anybody have any questions about Romans? Could be any passage in Romans that maybe you've struggled with and you are like, I just don't get it. Yeah, he never met the church of Rome. He had met Priscilla and Aquila, and I think there's, uh, there's what's her name? Is that okay to say that? What's, is it Phoebe? Romans 16. Phoebe. Is it Phoebe or Phoebe? Phoebe. So he had met Phoebe. In verse 3, he met, he knew Priscilla and Aquila from Corinth. Um, yeah, but as far as the, the church as a whole, he had never been to Rome. And um, so he knew people there, but he had never been there. So, yeah. Hmm? Until he was arrested Yeah. As soon as they brought him to Roman chains, uh, he got introduced to the Roman church. Yeah. Fun stuff, huh? Wasn't exactly the way Paul wanted to visit Rome, but that's how he. Yeah. All right. No questions? Okay, you have your outline. Now go study like mad. I could, I could teach Romans uh, verse by verse from start to finish, back to back, and over and over again, because you can, you can really teach all of Scripture from Romans. And um, so it's pretty sweet. But, okay, if there's no questions. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Um, I, I I'm interested in where he got that from. It's, he just always just say that um, it just wasn't necessarily God's plan that it was about pride, it's about that all the people would go. Okay. Okay. From where? Uh, well, he wrote um, <laughs> he wrote the prison epistles. Yeah, so uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He wrote First uh, Timothy. Uh, from there, he wrote he wrote Titus. No, First and Second Timothy, I believe. Hmm. Yeah. So Romans was written from Corinth, and uh, I can't remember where he was uh, when he wrote. Um, Galatians. He wrote the, the, the first Corinthians from Ephesus and he finished second Corinthians on his way back to Corinth. And then, um, so that was, that's four epistles, Romans, first and second Corinthians, Galatians, uh, Philemon, uh, he was in prison in Philemon. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say that I, without the scriptures affirming it. You know, Paul had the position that he didn't want to go and preach the gospel in a city where somebody else was already doing the work, and uh, he wanted to go to a fresh city 
so that you wouldn't be interfering with another man's work. Yeah? Okay. Well, let's stand up and pray. Get you guys out of here. Well, Father, thank you that um, by your spirit, the Apostle Paul was inspired to write the book of Romans and that because of the circumstances, he, not knowing for certain that he would get there, he was careful to uh, give the most comprehensive and and systematic uh, instruction regarding our faith. And uh, otherwise, if we didn't have it, we'd have to just piece it together from the Gospels and the Epistles. But Romans is just so clear and put together so well. And so, Lord, thank you for that. And uh, we just pray that you would use it to um, solidify us in the faith, to broaden our understanding, and uh, to give us courage in all that we believe, that we might serve you uh, more deeply. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.